0: To avoid the touch of your hand I must not be drawn Into the bedroom of your eyes
1: You're not mine anymore As we take our last walk together
0: You'd see me soon But you're as silent as the moon You could say let's start again But you think of other men And I wonder if I ever knew The more elusive inner you For the buttons of your mind Were difficult to find And my fingers far too clumsy You're not mine anymore
1: as we take our last walk together
2: Welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was Scaffold, Buttons of Your Mind. It's because I've got the huge pleasure today to welcome Andy Roberts. Andy has played with so many great artists, as well as Scaffold, the Bonzos, Pink Floyd, Cat Stevens, and many more, and also Plain Song. And we'll be covering that today, especially as well as a fabulous solo career. A huge welcome, Andy. Hello. So one of the reasons we're here, and we'll cover this a bit later, there's a there's a fabulous book by Ian Clayton about your time in Plain Song or Plain Song more. Generally called "In Search of Plain Song," but we'll cover that a little bit later. Okay. But maybe it's worth digging a little into the sort of early steps of your career, and obviously that's Round about the period uh, we started with in Scaffold. But um, yeah, you were around the Liverpool scene literally because you went to Liverpool Uni, but you're not originally from Liverpool.
3: No, no, I'm from from North London. And I, I went to Liverpool pretty much on a whim. That what decided it was that in 1965 I met the Scaffold and a whole load of other people like Agent Henry and incidentally Viv Stanshall of the Bonzos, all at the same time in a, a theatre at the Edinburgh Festival. And um, when I got home, I found I'd been offered. A university place at Liverpool, amongst other places. And I thought, well, hell, I've just met these people from Liverpool and they're all great. I'll go there. So that's what I did. But I had no knowledge that I mean I didn't think I would ever see them because that's before mobile phones or anything like that and I didn't have any phone numbers for them and it was a chance encounter with Roger McGough literally the first day I was in Liverpool I ran into him in a bookshop that started the ball rolling and after that I was lost <laughs> and I, I went there to do a law degree but I ended up a musician three years later
2: so And Buttons of Your Mind. So that was the B-side of Lily the Pink. Did you play on both sides of of that record?
3: Yeah, well, what what happened was in 1966, so less than a year after I'd gone to Liverpool, I became a sort of music director stroke accompanist for The Scaffold. Because The Scaffold, although they had a bit of music in the show, they were basically a theatre team, sort of comedy theatre team. And none of them were instrumentalists. So they would sing a cappella early on. So I started providing accompaniments and started touring with them in 1966. So when we came to do Lily, Lily came out of a live show that we did, I think the year before, I think probably 67. It was recorded in early 68, I think. And, uh, buttons of your mind, which is much more the sort of poetic side of it, you know, nice sweet melody from Mike McCartney and, uh, and nice poetry from Roger Bagar. That was something that we were justifiably very proud of, and we decided that would be a nice thing to put out as a record. And when we recorded the record, they couldn't really decide, which, in fact, when it was released, it was released as what we term a double A side. Oh, It came out as Lily the Pink slash Buttons of Your Mind, and it was the public that decided overwhelmingly that they loved all the clowning about with John Gorman because John didn't really get a look in on Buttons. But Buttons means a lot to me because musically it's got some lovely moments and it was playing with Nicky Hopkins who was somebody that I knew about but had never met and uh, and Nicky was on the session and we just hit it off. So I love the combination of acoustic guitar and harpsichord which is what's on that uh, that side of the record. So it's just that everybody knows Lily. So I thought it'd be nice to play the other side.
2: So next we have the Liverpool scene and love So Liverpool scene, was that the group before you were playing predominantly with Scaffold?
3: No, no. Came after. I played with Scaffold for a couple of years or maybe 18 months or something like that. And then I had to really stop because I, I did have a, a university degree that I was trying to get I mean I got a rubbish one but at least I got it but to do that I had to because by then Lily had become such a huge success that they were playing you know Batty Variety Club or the Fiesta Club Stockton or something yeah. and uh, that didn't fit in I, I, I was missing lectures and it was crazy so I ducked out of everything to do with the scaffold and Adrian Henry swooped because he was still teaching at the art college and locally based so we recruited Percy Jones from my university band, The Trip. And uh, Mike Hart and Mike Evans were both around on the scene, and Brian Dodson too, around on the uh, the music scene in Liverpool. And uh, then we were off and running as Liverpool scene. And it, it sort of came from the poetry side of Scaffold or the Mersey poets, really. I mean, it was, I worked with all three of them quite extensively in the 60s. But um, Adrian won out, he stopped teaching. When I graduated, that was the catalyst for the thing becoming a full-time outfit then, and Adrian packed in teaching. And we were off and running then. Uh, Mike Hart didn't last too long. He was only with us for about three or four months. But we did the first album, and then Artie left, and uh, we carried on as a five-piece
2: after that. You played quite a lot of live shows, but doing mm. sessions for the likes of scaffold in parallel then
3: uh, yeah there must have been some because they found a, a TV show from 1968 or nine no, I think it's 69 and it was scaffold live at the talk of the town and I was on that so I must have taken a, a sabbatical from Liverpool so I mean it's, there must have been times when we didn't play for a week but it felt like we were playing 28 days a month every month you know I mean it was very full-on. But Liverpool scene lasted about 18 months, that's all. I always think we split up in May 1970. And then I moved back down to London because I didn't want to stay in Liverpool without a band to play with. So on the way down, I had a motorcycle accident, um, courtesy of Les, the lighting guy from uh, Principal Edwards Magic Theatre. I stopped off to see them in the Midlands in uh, Northamptonshire and – Proceeded to go and get drunk with Les one lunchtime and fell off a motorbike and that put me on my uppers for a couple of months and then I formed a band called Everyone and that only lasted three or four months before we had a devastating road accident and uh, the r- r- Paul Scard our road manager was killed and we lost all the gear and uh, that's the point at which I met Ian Matthews. Yeah. Well, I, I basically didn't want a tour. I let it be known that I was just not interested in. It had been a traumatic year, one way and another, and I, losing Paul, I felt, you know, really messed up by that psychologically. And Paul Samuel Smith who by then was producing he'd left the yardbirds and was uh, was just a full-time producer got in touch i think that was mike mccartney's doing uh, but he phoned me up and said he, he had an artist this was ian matthews and he needed a guitarist to work with ian on his new songs and put us together so it was an arranged marriage that still exists to this day
4: Love is feeling cold on the back of bands Love is a fan club with only two fans Love is walking, holding paint, stained hands Love is Love is fish and chips on winter nights Love is blankets full of strange delights Love is when you don't put out the lights Love is Love is the presents in the Christmas shops Love is when you're feeling top of the pops Love is what happens when the music stops Love is Love is opening valentines, love is when you read those awful rhymes, love is when you read between the lines, love is. Love is you and love is me, love's a prison and love is free, love's what's there when you're away from me,
2: love is. We have next, then called Bonzo Dog Band, and don't get me wrong from the uh, Let's Make Up and Be Friendly album. And obviously, so you knew people like Mike McCartney, Roger McGough. It feels like there was a lot of things in common with yeah. uh, the Bonzos.
3: Absolutely. As I said earlier, I met, I met Viv the same year that I met the Scaffold at the Edinburgh Festival. Viv was working with a mime artist called Lindsay Kemp, and uh, he was. I just hit it off with him. We got on, on really well, so I stayed in touch. And then when I would moved back down to London in 1970, he was living not far away. I mean, he's probably of my good friends. He was probably as close as anybody in the music business. He was living in East Finchley, and I was back initially living at my parents' house in Stanmore. And uh, so I used to hang out with Viv a lot. And then the original, the Bonsai Dog Band had actually split up in a fair amount of, of sort of rancor. But Viv and Neil had stayed together, and they decided to form a band which Viv called Bonzo Dog Freaks. And I was drawn into that with uh, David Richards on bass, uh, Ian Wallace on drums, Bubbles White on second guitar, and uh, Neil was in it, of course. I toured with them uh, quite a bit in 19... 71 and then we made the let's make up and be friendly album at the end of 1971 maybe september or something like that we were the first band to use the manor recording studio in oxfordshire which uh richard branson had set up which was the first residential you know fully equipped residential studio in the country and we were the first a band in there They were basically trying out the studio. Tom Newman, the chief engineer, was learning about the studio through us making that album. And then at the same time we were doing that, there was this funny bloke who seemed to be nocturnal, you know, something golem like about him because I hardly ever saw him, called Mike Oldfield. And he was scurrying about when we weren't recording he was in the studio with Tom and some of the other engineers doing whatever it was that he was doing and of course within a year we found out that that was going to be Tubular Bells and uh, it went on to be Tubular Bells basically
5: Time I stop to think
1: of all your charms,
5: ruby lips and eyes of pink
6: and a touch of aerosol.
5: a long time since Don't we were close. Get me wrong. Steal. Why did you let me go? Please know I feel the same way about you.
7: Don't
5: get me Don't get
7: me, mind. I deal. Don't
5: get me wrong. Don't get do See ya!
2: Again, more ties, so we, we go from yeah. the Bonzo's, naturally, to Neil Innes and Mama B from Neil's first solo record. How sweet to be an idiot.
3: Yeah, well, I can't remember the exact chronology. I mean, I just was in the studio all the time doing stuff. That, that was uh, uh, done at Chipping Norton Studios. Mike and Richard Vernon from Blue Horizon Records had opened their own residential recording studio in Chipping Norton. And uh, I think we were one of the early people in there as well and neil still had an ongoing relationship with well what's the record company that that was on initially um at the bonzo oh,
2: united artists
3: yeah ua that's right and um they offered him a solo deal and he came up with it and uh that's uh, the first record that we did again david Richards played bass ollie houseall who i knew from fatso oh, i had known him from from timebox and pato Later he was with Fatso, actually, but, uh, but Pato I knew him from. Uh, he came in and played guitar. And wonderful Mike Kelly, who I'd known from Spooky Tooth, fabulous drummer, later on with The Only Ones, he came and played drums. It was a very happy time. I loved that record. I thought it was great. You know, Neil was a very close friend and collaborator. So. And then it all kind of coalesced. The Bonzo thing got, the Bonzo Dog Freaks just got left behind. In '71 and in 1972, without my presence, they started touring as Grims, which was a, an acronym of the names of the people involved. I don't know if you knew that: Gorman, Roberts, mm. innis McGough, McGear, Stanshall. McGear was Mike McCartney in those days, but Roberts wasn't there because he was uh, with a band called Plain Song that year. Mm. But as soon as Plain Song folded at the end of 1972, I was immediately drawn back into the fold. So. I think we did uh, How Sweet to Be an Idiot in 73, and that was a year that we did at least one Grimm's tour, possibly even two. And the people working on that album were really Grimm's people. You know, Kelly was drumming for Grimm's and uh, Ollie would certainly join us when he could.
2: You mentioned earlier about meeting Ian Matthews and we've next got Desert Inn from Ian's album, If You Saw Through My Eyes. And am I right that Desert Inn was one of the first songs that you worked on together?
3: I think it was the first song that we worked on together. As I say, it was an arranged marriage. Paul Smith introduced us. I went over to Ian's flat in Hampstead just to meet him and see if we had any common ground and we started, he played me some songs and I think Desert Inn was certainly one of them and I think may have been the first one. I remember it as being the first one that we recorded. I remember it going into Morgan Studios in Wilston and that being the first track up. But anyway, yeah, we found that we had a shared passion for backgammon. (laughs) that, That cemented the thing a bit. And we just got on really well, and we we always have, I mean, we had our disagreements over the years, but very few relatively, and uh, and we'd done a lot of good work together, so, you know, but that album was fabulous, because it introduced me to a whole area of music that I didn't really know, I mean, coming from Liverpool, I remember I started working with Ian only about seven months after leaving Liverpool, having had the whole existence, the life of my band, everyone had taken place during that seven months and had gone from start to finish in really intense arc. And then it was because of the road crash was over but living in Liverpool. There were no recording studios in Liverpool in the sixties, not that you would call recording studios. And we didn't really know how to make records. I mean, the scaffold were well produced because they had Norrie paramour looking after them and they were EMI artists. Liverpool's scene it was a bit kind of makeshift really the way that we made records because we were in Liverpool not in London so we come down go into the studio in one day make a record and then go back up to Liverpool you know I mean it, it was not uh, a particularly uh, creative way of of doing things and uh with Ian through doing that first album if you saw through my eyes that introduced me to a whole different way of working it was uh, initially it was Paul Samuel Smith producing and all of Ian's coterie of friends which is basically the English electric folk literati were all the people involved so you had uh, Dave Mattax and Jerry Conway on drums and people like Richard Thompson and, and Sandy Denny Oh, there's just so many people, you know, Keith Tippett was all over it. It was just wonderful who had that. And that that gave me a lifetime taste for having a jazz pianist on a straight ahead pop music session. Makes a big difference. Tim Rennick, you know, these are all wonderful players. And Pat Donaldson on bass. And they became really close friends and collaborators for years and years afterwards, you know, and because it started a session career for me, which meant that uh, for the first time in my life, I actually had some money in my pocket.
8: All the goodness seems to float upon the top But it takes a while to push its way around in a place like Desert Inn, Seems to help me keep alive And kick in In another time I might be unaffected If I ever get the chance To be alone And this little thing of mine Seems to help me keep alive And kick in And I can't run any faster It's hard to change your mind Much harder when you're blind And you got no eyes to find What you're doing What you're doing Exercise would do me good But I had a lot of friends And they helped me stay alive
2: Next, we have Sunday Morning by Roger McGough from his uh, Summer with Monica album from 1978. So, you continued to work with Roger for quite a number of years?
3: I still do, but um, had a strange genesis that piece. Of, and I have to say that of the projects that I've been involved with in my life, that one is one of the dearest to me the, the Summer with Monica recording. But it was actually the very first thing that I ever wrote. Music for as a collaboration with Roger as a poet, so poetry mm. with acoustic guitar. But that was back in 1966. We did a show that before I even started working with the scaffold, I'd only been in Liverpool three or four months. And as I said, I ran into Roger the first day I was there. He he said, "Oh, we must collaborate. Let's do something," you know. So I went round to his flat and we started messing about putting guitar accompaniments to poems and. Uh, I did a, the, in fact, a very early version of the uh, "Summer of Monica," which I think you picked up on when we discussed which tracks to use. Was on a an album which was done at the end of the '60s called "McGoff and McGear," but yeah. it was a very, very early version. It was very derivative. It was fun to do because it was a chance to play with Paul McCartney amongst many others. But. um the version of it that I'm really proud of is this 1978 version. What happened was that Island Records came to Roger and said, you know, here's £10,000, we'd like a Roger McGough album. £10,000 $10, is a lot of money in 1978, I've got to tell you. And Roger immediately phoned me up and said, well, oh, they give giving me all this money, what am I going to do? I don't want to do a spoken word album, let's see what we're doing. And I said, well, why don't we expand somewhere with Monica and do a really... Puck a version of it, you know, draw all the poems in and make a, an event of it. So we came up with the idea basically of spending all of the £10,000 in one day. Huh. The idea was that we would prepare it. There would be some expenses because there would be arrangements to be done and obviously time to be spent on it. But basically the money was to be spent in one day on an orchestra. And we would just have this big orchestral event, which we did in uh, Studio Two at the EMI Studios, now called Abbey Road Studios, but then it was just EMI. And uh, my friend John Lecky, who I'd met from uh, working with Roy Harper, was a wonderful EMI engineer. Still very good friend today. I brought him into the project as well to look after the engineering and producing side of it and uh, help, you know, organise the budget for it and everything. And that's what we did. We just recorded the whole thing in one day. So the arrangements were, the orchestral arrangements were by John Megginson, who's uh, unfortunately not with us anymore, a Liverpool musician, who had also worked with with the Scaffold quite extensively. And uh, Robert Kirby, who of course latterly has uh, become justly celebrated as the man that wrote all the string parts for the Nick Drake albums. And had been at university with Nick, but Bob was just a, another really lovely dear friend and uh he did some fabulous work on on the album as well so it was a very happy time and and we did exactly that we had exactly one day in abbey road with 38 musicians it was costing every penny of what we had in the budget and uh and we produced this uh recording which is still available on fledgling records of um roger's suite of poems Summer with monica
0: pictures fluttered on dusty church floors when dockers snored and mams went heavy on the gravy browning you got out of bed and picking up a hatchet whose name was i love you but we can't go on like this you murdered me brutally then with my tears still singing on your hands you went to your mother's for telly and a lie down You should never have said that. Now your smiles are white elephants and your face a photograph to become across some slow brown Sunday. You should never have said that. Your tongue is a mother without pity. Now love is gone and anonymous, like the death of a bird
2: in a city. So we featured your work with Ian Matthews earlier, mm. and now we do get to plain song Call the Tune from In Search of Amelia Eha album from nineteen seventy two. Maybe it's worth first mentioning new book in search of plain song that's out on route. So I assume you you contributed to that as well.
3: Yeah, just doing what we're doing now, which is just you like the blue touch paper and I talk endlessly. <laughs> I drone endlessly on about my favourite subject, which is me.
2: (laughs) I assume, therefore, as you were indicating earlier, yourself and Ian had an affinity and as soon as you met each other it seemed you were at ease and so I assume it was a natural process to form more of a a group?
3: Kind of. I was a bit surprised when it happened in the way it happened. I mean, Ian was the man with the big career. I mean, he'd, he'd had a huge hit with Woodstock before I'd even met him and then he'd formed the original Matthew Southern Comfort and that had done well, but he'd been dissatisfied with that. By the time I started working with him, he was signed to Vertigo, and uh, which is basically basically Phillips, and uh, he was uh, making solo records. We did two together, in, uh, mainly in 1971, and then did s- some dates in the summer, a couple of festival dates in this country, and we went over to Paris. That was just Ian, myself, and Tim Rennick. And then uh, he had an American tour that uh, started in, I don't know, June, July, something like that. And we were originally going to do it as a band with Timmy Donald on drums, David Richards on bass, and uh, myself. And uh, he persuaded Richard Thompson to come on board. And then at the last minute, Ian changed his mind and decided he just wanted to do it as an acoustic three-piece. So it was just Ian, and the band was me and Richard. So that was an interesting time because... Ian got the hotel room on his own and I was sharing hotel rooms with Richard for two and a half months, right? The length and breadth of America. So it's quite quite amusing, really. And then when we came back from that, I had a solo tour booked because I, I'd had a sort of – I've never been that interested in a solo career, to be honest, at any point. But I was being pushed in that direction and uh, I was booked as support to a Steeleye span tour. So I was touring around uh, doing that, and I, if I'm going to work on my own, I'd like to work with a bass player. And uh, David Richards had always been there for me for several years, and suddenly he wasn't available because he was. Uh, uh, Sandy Denny had swooped and hired him for a solo tour of hers. So I was casting about for who I would use as a bass player, and I checked with Sandy Robertson, my manager, um, whether it would be possible to bring over Bobby Ronga, who'd been he'd sort of accidentally become the bass player on that American tour uh, in the uh, Ian's American tour in 1971. So uh, we managed to swing that. So Bobby came over and played the steel eye tour with me and Ian kept showing up on uh, shows, you know, every now and then he'd come along and sing a bit of backup and all that stuff. And then David came off tour with, um, with Sandy. So he would start showing up and we'd found that we would had a nice, easy, you know, sweet, vocal harmony with the four of us and uh, and it was ian's suggestion because it wasn't anybody else's call really to say to ian why don't you join our band he he was the one who said why don't we get together as a four piece and do something we didn't really know what it would be so that's what we did in uh, i think it might have been december 1971 we all convened and it, ian's flat he'd moved from Hampstead by then and uh He was in Highgate and uh, we all got together and we decided that as a test piece, we would see if we could record a version of the Tandon Alma song, Along Comes Mary, which had been recorded by the association. She's a wonderful song. It's really tricky. Goes places that you're not really expecting, but it rocks madly. And uh, we thought, well, if we can do a good version of Along Comes Mary, maybe we we could do something. So We got together and found it just fell into place brilliantly and there is actually a recording of us doing that song which was never put out at the time but it does exist and i remember at the end of the day calling up sandy roberton who was my manager at that time saying sandy sandy you've got to get over here come and listen to this come and listen to this so he he came over and heard it and he was just blown away by it so it all started moving from that so Yeah, we started booking dates for 1972
2: after that I spoke to um, Andy Bowne relatively recently Uh, Andy was talking about certain difficulties At the mixed blessing of of working with Ken Howard and Alan Blakely Oh yeah uh, Managing the herd I was startled to read in Ian Clayton's book About Howard and Blakely being involved in the uh, early period of playing song
3: Well that was because of Ian Ian was signed to them They were the ones that had negotiated the, the Vertigo deal for him And they had looked after Matthew Southern Comfort before that. So I'm not sure how he got embroiled with them, but he was a a pretty long-standing artist of theirs. And uh, yes, it was, I mean, they were very different to what I was used to working with. And initially when we put playing song together, obviously we had to accommodate Ken and Alan, but Sandy was my manager. So it was a triumvirate of managers then, Ken and Alan and Sandy between them. And of course, it was nonsense because we were a paying out a huge percentage of our earnings to all these various bods. And they never really were able to understand what it was we were trying to do. I can remember our first Dutch tour that we did quite early on, I think February, maybe March in 1972. And we went out there and we landed at Schiphol Airport. And I think the first show, my recollection is that the first show was in Eindhoven, which is, you know, and if you got in a car and drove it, it'd probably take you two hours. We flew from Schiphol to Eindhoven in a thing called a Fokker Friendship, which is like a 12-seater twin turbo prop tiny little passenger plane you know god knows what that costs you know and then when we got there we hired an opal senator this big limousine and we got back home after playing you know 10 dates or a dozen dates and found that you know we'd lost 2000 pounds doing it it was madness i mean it made no sense at all and so we we really moved we decided Very soon that we didn't want to work with Ken and Alan at all because they weren't really capable of understanding the level that we wanted to work on, which was really only a sort of folk music level. And Sandy was much more intuitive. And it wasn't until we got our record deal with Jack Holtzman and Elektra that we had the money to be able to buy out Ian's contract. And that was a big chunk of advance for the first album was uh, when we got the cash and were able to give Ken and Alan what what, or negotiate with Ken and Alan I think Sandy did that to a figure that we could actually actually buy them off and then Ian was free
8: is saying to me And I'm on a hill and slowly climbing can't depend on where I'll be and Mercy knows I'm getting hungry The years have helped me now it seems you're on the road again unless he knows I'm getting hungry the years they've helped me miss the pain and everybody knows I'm tired Once again.
6: Once again, if you're gonna try, you gotta face the music if you wanna.
2: So we're going to your one of your solo music now, Andy, and we've got Moths <clears> and Lizards in Detroit from your exceptional debut album, uh, Homegrown. So we're going back a few years here. So w- when you were recording your first solo album, you, were you still in Liverpool scene? Yeah, yeah. Right.
3: Yeah, Sandy suggested that it would be nice to make a solo album, so he negotiated to get some recording costs from RCA. And, uh, you yeah, know, we did it, I think, very early in 1970. I'm thinking something like that. And uh, it came after Liverpool scene did a, an American tour in 1969, which at the time, I mean, it seemed the most fantastic thing to be asked to go to America because we were very parochial. I mean, we we were, you know, really up there in Liverpool, not knowing anything about how things were done so we went over and lost the fortune and uh, nothing went well but we got a lot of experience out of it and moths and lizards was really part of that you know there were there were a lot of detroits and a lot of moths and lizards all <laughs> over the place and in fact actually on that tour I, I i we did a gig with the association i remember that oh that's where that my you know affection for that tandem Armour song came from that really just see and they were lovely they were they were really really nice to us i remember that they went out of their way to give the liverpool scene who were this weird no hope band from the uk but they made sure that we got a really good sound check and they looked after us really well they were lovely yeah that came from that period i don't know all i did was there were things that from the pre-professional years i mean when i'd been at school and i'd uh, and there was a song on there, on the original version of it, called uh, Autumn to May, which is a Peter, Paul and Mary song. You know, I just loved the song, although it was great. And I certainly, at university... My friend Richard Granfield had had a wonderful collection of blues records and uh, much else besides, and he had uh, Sandy and Jeannie Darlington were a, a bluegrass duo, and uh, they had a fabulous album called "I Ain't Gonna Work Tomorrow," and I borrowed that, and there were a few songs on there that I really liked. There was one called "Jello" that I put on the uh, album, and they also recorded a version of uh, "Where the Solar Man Never Dies," which of course. It was a classic, but I didn't realise that at the time. I just thought it was – I loved the noise that it made, you know, so I recorded that. So there were all sorts of things, you know, Sun Houses, John the Revelator, There was a whole mixture of stuff, but it was all the things that I'd loved before I was a, a full-time player and before I had any thoughts or any knowledge about how to record properly. I mean, was—it's again, it's going back to that Liverpool thing. I, mean, I just went into the studio and sort of made it up as we went, you know. And then that was mixed in with with some original compositions, some of which came out of the American tour. You know, that the title song "Homegrown" was certainly about that. But uh, it was a, a kind of a mishmash. But I'm it's nice for you to say that you liked it. But it came out in two different versions yeah. as well. There was a. An early version, and then Sandy negotiated a, a kind of re-release. I'm not quite sure why that was. I think it's probably just because he could get a few bob more. You know, came out again on B and C, which stood for beat and commercial. And uh, for that release, I record, I ditched some of the obscure stuff and recorded some new stuff, and also tidied up some vocals which at the time I thought was absolutely the thing to do. Later on, when I went and listened to them much more recently, I kind of took against it and realised that the original vocals were actually better. I don't know. I I was being a bit affected and uh, I'd got a bit further away from the honesty of the originals. But there you go.
2: And uh, on much of that homegrown material, you were playing with... One of my favourite bands of that period, and I'm I'm not quite sure what they were called at the time, but the the Action or Mighty Baby. They
3: were were Mighty Baby by then. Yeah, they'd been the Action, but uh, yeah, they were Mighty Baby. But boy, they were great players. They were fabulous. You know, Mike Evans and Roger Powell were absolutely phenomenal. You know, what a rhythm section. They were really great. So, yeah, I loved working with them. It was fun time. Sandy, of course, Sandy Robertson, who was my manager and producer, and great friend and remains so, um, was responsible really for bringing those people into the sessions and much else besides. I mean, Mac and Kathy soon she soon to be she became Katie after a misprint on ah. on a record label. But she was uh, there were Mac and Kathy. Her name's Kathy, uh, and they came in with a guy called Mike London as uh, session singers there were really lovely people that, that we got involved with and then later on once Sandy started working with Steely, because he managed and produced them as well Martin Carthy came along and, and was on sessions of mine and it was just we were all friends together it was wonderful you go in the studio and you just never knew where you are going to end up I mean I brought Zoop Money I met Zoop Money first playing on a Well, apart from, you know, meeting him dancing on tabletops in the 60s, but um, he was on um, the first Mike McCartney album in that again, I think was 1970, maybe an album called Woman and um, oh, yeah. Zoot was on that and we became absolutely firm friends and remain so and I, I just I loved what he did vocally and as I say all pop records should have a jazz pianist and Zoot is mine I just used Zoot on everything after I'd met him He's a wonderful man, great player, great singer
9: At five o'clock the day begins, at six o'clock it ends With troubled sounds from blackened trees, it takes more than it lends Blisters on a ravaged hand he guards his shattered floor Miles can seem like six or seven. Bu-
2: We move forward to uh, your album "Nina and the Dream Tree" and the track "I've Seen the Movie," and that's a song that uh, has been given greater prominence relatively recently because it was on the compilation of the orchestrations of Robert Kirby. Yeah, Bob did that
3: and um, wonderfully. That whole album is quite interesting actually because it really only comes out of two things. The first, the first side are songs about my. Girlfriend at that time, who was an actress called Polly James. She had been in the original version of the Liver Birds, and uh, Paul was a, a wonderful person. And um, I wrote songs about her and and just about the way things were between us, but they were quite surreal. I mean, they realised in a, a fairly obscure way. And then the second side, which is called the Dream Tree sequence, is just about a tour that. Adrian Henry and I did as a duo in Norway in 1970 or 71 I think it might have been 71 and uh, it was a poetry and music thing that became this very long extended song about experiences over in Norway and uh, and that's where the the dream tree sequence came from so I don't know it, it fell together Fairly easily, and uh, and people really like that record. I mean, it it's uh, it was really only my second solo record, and remember, that I've only had four and a half solo records really. They're not many. I, I as I say, I, I never had any interest particularly. I, I just like collaborating, and I, uh, very soon by the time, I mean certainly by the time I was doing Summer with Monica, I had a really quite extensive career in theatre and television, and that became something that developed later on and uh so i've been very happy to be a sort of jack of all trades and uh um move you know jump from stool to stool rather than you know being what early on everyone was saying oh you know we need another record you should be making two records a year blah blah, blah, blah you know and i just didn't have the confidence in my own Writing or performing ability to really want to go that way. I loved working in visuals. I loved working in television and then in film later on. That was my favourite thing, really.
9: Too old to cross my fingers It's almost worth the wait Don't know how to say this Yes, I came too late I've seen the movie For the second time Suppose that I'm too young Too young To close my mind But someone slammed the door Put a shoulder to the door What do we do
8: it for? Now
9: that I'm I'm up here on the screen You think that I don't see you Whatever makes you think you can't be seen The second time, let me be in your movie. You can be in mine, and the seats are. i
2: Back to Plain Song for the second time, also from In Search of Amelia Earhart. What was it like recording with Plain Song? Was it quite an easy and natural process?
3: I think it was, but we had very high ideals. I mean, we were aiming high. We knew that we'd been given a lot of money by Jack Holtzman and there was a lot riding on it, and the expectation was very high. So, in some ways, there was pressure. I think Ian would say that he felt pressure all through those years because he was, you know, after Sudden Come, first of all, after Woodstock and the Sudden Comfort thing and then the solo years had gone well and then with Plain Song, you know, he he was on an upward trajectory and wanted to continue it. So there was some pressure on the sessions, but I think we did, we felt comfortable enough with it. There were just a couple of tracks that didn't gel in the first instance and and required a bit of work. One of those was called the tune, which you played earlier. I remember going home with that and uh, another song called "Even the Guiding Light," and taking a rough monitor mix of the songs home, and saying, "Just, I'm, I'm going to listen to these. I was leaving with me. I'm going to fix them. It's fine. It's fine. Just leave it to me. Leave it to me. Leave it to me." And, and in fact, I went into the studio with those two tracks, and just Sandy Robertson and an engineer. The other three guys weren't there at all. And I did a kind of remedial session on both of them and happy to say rescued the situation because we knew that we there were great songs, but we hadn't sort of found the DNA in them. And I managed to do that with those two tracks. I've seen the movie. I just fell into place. David Richards was a bass, good bass player and a great high harmony singer, but he was also a lovely kind of romantic pianist. He had lovely fluency and uh, was very inventive. And uh, that song heavily features David on piano. And the other thing is the, the sound that it starts with is the sound of this instrument called the Krivacek string organ that I happened to, I sort of latch onto in a very strange um, way I, I was listening to the radio when I'd moved back down to London in 1970 and was living in my parents house there was a program on the radio every Monday morning called start the week with Richard Baker and uh, it was just a sort of magazine program really and I, I turned it on I was lying in bed and uh, you know eyes shut and drifting And this bloke came on playing this instrument that he claimed to have invented. And I thought, God, it sounds amazing. So I phoned up the BBC and said, who was that guy? And they wouldn't tell me because they weren't allowed to do that. But well, what they did was they they gave me his name and spelt it, but they wouldn't give me a number for him or any contact details of any kind. But his name was Paul Krivacek, And fortunately, there are not a lot of Krivacek's in the London phone mm. book. <laughs> so I, phoned, I found one and I phoned this, this lady who turned out to be his auntie who was from, uh, Vienna and didn't speak any English, but she managed to give me his, his phone number. So I phoned him up and, uh, Went round to see him and uh, got embroiled with the the sort of launch of this instrument, which never got beyond the launch, really, mm. but I ended up the sole exponent of it. But it was a wonderful thing. It made a great noise, and uh, I used it on all sorts of things. I used it with uh, Grimm's. I used it with Roy Harper quite extensively. used it on my solo stuff, of course, and uh, and on that first song album. Uh, so that's the sound that actually precedes that track yeah
2: and it seems incredible that um, Song, in the original incarnation in the early 70s only released one album was it just the commercial side that just didn't gel for playing Song? oh
3: you'd have to read the book it's really painful for me to read the book we were just young I was loving the band because musically it was so much more sophisticated than anything I'd done before that's the way it seemed to me at the time we were going in different directions. Ian and I, I, mean, Ian had introduced me to country music, and then backed off. Whereas I got, I kind of got the bug, and and was really loving playing that kind of repertoire. And he, he could see what was good about it, but it didn't grab him the way it grabbed me. And there were sort of creative differences, but most of what was wrong with the situation was that Jack Holtzman had never made any secret of the fact that although he'd invested in plainsong, what he really was investing in was Ian Matthews. He wasn't interested in the rest of us. And as soon as he could insert a wedge and prize Ian away from David, me and Bobby. I mean there were there were other reasons why the thing started fragmenting as well. But that was the main thing. There was a lot of pressure on Ian and and Ian very soon decided that he was going to go to America and uh, initially work with Mike Nesmith on solo records. And that's how it ended. So before the end of the only year that that band existed, it was toast, but it was quite messy at the end because we were not good communicators. I mean, Ian and I are both, we're better now we're a bit more grown up and we got a lot more experience but we were all quite shy and buttoned up and didn't really talk in a way that probably we should have at the time and Sandy quite rightly just figured well we were the artists, so he left us to get on with it and uh, we just let a really good thing go and that's something that Ian and I both had to acknowledge subsequently but the good thing about it is that 20 years later, we got together and reformed uh, with different people and uh, carried on. And uh, we, we, you know, we're much more united than ever we were.
2: So we mentioned this earlier. It seems incredible that um, you played with Pink Floyd for the Wall Tour. So how did that come about?
3: Well, uh, because I was working with Roy Harper, I'd known Roy for a long time. I met Roy during his time in London. With Liverpool scene, we would quite often end up on the same bill together. And during my years in Liverpool... I really wasn't in London a lot, so I needed somewhere to stay, so I'd go and sleep on his floor in uh, in Fordwich Road um, and just call him up, and uh, Nick was three or something, not even probably, and then when in 1975, he had a band, I think they were called Trigger at the time, and he needed some personnel changes, and he had an American tour, so he called me up and asked me to do that, which I did, I went out to America with, uh, and John, I suggested John Halsey, he needed a drummer, I took John Halsey out there with me, who is the, who's Barrington Womble from the Ruttles, yeah and uh, the one, and had been in Pato, you see we come back to all of that, you know, these are all just wheels within wheels really, and uh, I worked with Roy for about five years, after that American tour we came back and uh, we did an album called Bull in a Ming Bars, and it was a time of change for Roy. I mean, he was his uh, his direction was changing. But we had we sometimes worked as a duo, sometimes as a four piece. We had a, a six piece when we first started with um, with Halsey on drums, uh, David Cochran from Sharks on bass, myself and Henry McCulloch on guitar, Roy and a keyboard player called uh, David Lawson who'd been with Greenslade and that was a band called Black Sheep and that was a lovely band in its era but a, a bit expensive to keep on the road so that was pared back but one of the things was that Roy had very strong friendships with Floyd and and also with the Led Zeppelin people who I knew because Liverpool scene had toured with Led Zeppelin in 1969 mm. so I knew Jimmy and uh, Robert Plant from that so it was really through Roy's relationship with David Gilmore. We played a, I played a Roy Harper show at the Dominion in on, on Tottenham Court Road, and this was, I think, at, right at the end of 1980. David came to see the show, and he phoned me up the next morning and said, "Look, I've got a situation because we've been doing this show called The Wall, and it involves doubling up on." the instrumental side of Pink Floyd. So we have two guitars, two basses, two drummers, and two keyboard players. But the second guitarist, Snowy White, is dropping out because he's joined Thin Lizzy. So I need a guitarist for seven shows in Germany. Would you be available? So, I mean, you can imagine how reluctant I was to go on the road with Pink Floyd. (laughs) So, um you know, so of course I, I held him off, held it nah, I, I, I said yeah <laughs> two seconds later. So that was how it fell. So in, initially it was just a place seven dates in Germany, and in the meantime I'd got a tour with Billy Connolly book. So that was that preceded the Floyd thing. That was in early eighty one. So I did a tour with Billy Connolly using Pink Floyd's equipment, which was quite good because I was sent this stuff to learn how to use like pedal boards and uh, stuff. And um, and then I went out to Germany initially to play seven shows. They added one while I was there. That was eight shows. And then when we, we came back and that at that point, that was it, you know, and I was paid well for doing it and very happy. It all went well. And, uh, and then I got a phone call from Steve O'Rourke, who was their manager, saying, look, we're making a film of the wall and the thinking is it's going to be a concert film with dramatic inserts so to do that we have to film the show in concert so what we're doing is we're going back into Earl's Court for five days so we need you back to play another five days so I got drawn back into that it was just a lovely time obviously you know it's fun to be a rock dinosaur but you know you see it from all sides it was a difficult time for Floyd because they were kind of splitting up through all of that. But, uh, you know, the, I finished. I played 13 shows in total and then it was done and dusted. Stayed in touch. David actually lives here in Brighton where I live now or sometimes lives here. I've got to say, I think during COVID he went back to his farm in Billingshurst. But it, it's, um, you know, it's nice to see him when I see him. But um, a couple of centuries later, about 20 years later, they put out a live recording of it. And uh, because of the way the show was played, they were able to use both Snowy's guitar and my guitar, even though we were never in the band at the same time, we could be because so much of it was synced to a click or it had to be done that way because of there were a lot of projections and uh, stuff like that. And the music had to line up with the projections. So, you know, I got I got my name on a Pink Floyd album. and that's the best thing out of it, really. <laughs> Didn't get any extra money, but <laughs> No, it's good. I mean it, it was it was great fun and I'm very proud of it. I love doing it. I'm proud of the of the guts it takes to do that stuff. It's terrifying playing in front of twenty five thousand people. It might be fine if you've been doing it forever and your name's David Gilmore. But if you're Andy Robertson, you've never done it. Well, the Isle of Wight Festival in 69 was 150,000 people. But I I played the odd big audience, but always outdoors. But these sports stadia, you know, being a rock dinosaur, there's a fair amount of pressure on that stuff.
2: Great. We're playing a a version from Dortmund in... uh... February 81 from uh, one of the boots of the era so yeah. um, let's let's listen to Hey You
3: I, I just say about that track by the way the, the, the Floyd track that I was talking about the pressure of doing it that track starts with the, a solo high strung acoustic and because of the way the show was structured I had to play the solo high strung acoustic and that's the first track of the second half of the live show so Every night for 13 nights, I had to stand behind the wall because the wall had been built during the first half of the show and was completed as the last note of the first half is played. Suddenly the lights go up and you realize there's this massive wall between the band and the audience. And I had to stand behind the wall with you know a guitar on with a bloke just giving me the go signal and I had to start it set the tempo play it in tune not getting any notes wrong and all that. that's pressure I'm telling you now when you know the 25,000 Germans the other side of the wall you know? it's quite scary but it was uh, it was a good experience yeah
2: So we're now moving, Andy, to um, to discuss some of the work that you did after the 1970s, and we have um, the closing title music of the uh, TV program Priest.
3: No, it's not a it's not a TV program. Oh. It's a theatre film. It's a. a
2: oh, was it? oh, right. It,
3: yeah, yeah. It came. It was. Um, it started out as a TV program. It was going. To, oh. It was going to be a four-part BBC serial. Written by Jimmy McGovern, who was then flying high, Liverpool writer, wonderful Liverpool writer, and's written so many things that people would know. Mm. Cracker was the big thing before Priest. And then the BBC, I don't know, they ran out of money. Jimmy wanted to do it. So it coalesced around it being a single drama. I ended up music directing at the Royal Court Theatre in Sloan Square in London for about four years. And one of the assistant directors at that time was Antonia Bird. And we just hit it off and did good theatre work then. And later on, she moved into television. And so she used me for television, drama, series and serials that she did. She was uh, the director behind Priest. And she decided that even though it was being made as a single television drama, she was going to shoot it all on film. That was a, It was a bold decision. The BBC didn't like it because film was expensive, but it looks better. It was completed and the BBC took it to the Toronto Film Festival and it won the Audience Award.
2: going back into the 1970s to another of your solo albums here Andy Robertson The Great Stampede and the track Speedwell
3: yeah. it's the first track off that album that's way my favourite of my solo albums by that time playing song had split up but I had inherited a sort of semi deal with Electra Records and I first of all I had an album called Urban Cowboy then I did Andy Robertson The Great Stampede which was an album of songs that I'd mostly written when I was on honeymoon when I was married for the first time in in May 1973 I immediately went on honeymoon to Jamaica for a month and uh, I found Jamaica really inspirational and I wrote a lot of songs there. Speedwell's not greatly about it. its influence but but not particularly affected by the Jamaican experience but it was the first track on the album and I, I like it It's uh, Ollie Halsall is on it it sort of sums up what I was trying to do with that whole album, which was basically what I call soft rock. I wanted it to be tuneful, but I wanted it to be a big, fat, solid sound. And it was a wonderful band to to work with. Jerry Conway on drums, Pat Donaldson on bass, B.J. Cole on pedal steel guitar, myself, the inevitable Zoot Money on, on piano, and uh, a wonderful Man who had never heard of at that time. He was with a band called Joe Soap. His name is Mick Kaminsky. He ended up being leading light with the Electric Light Orchestra. He was a fiddle, an electric fiddle player. And I hired him for one session. And after the first day, I said to Sandy, "I want him on everything. He's fantastic, you know." So that was it. Uh, there were a couple of other session players who came in just for the odd job, but it was just wonderful. To, and I really, really love working with those guys. Everything about that album was an. What a joy, and I really believed in it. And then what happened was at the end of 1973, right when the record was due to come out, uh, there was an oil crisis, and the so-called three-day week came in. And the next thing was that EMI said, "Oh, we can't, we can't press your record at all because uh, we, we've slated all of, all of the factory has been turned over to making Beatles albums for Christmas, so we can't produce your album at all." So I made this record, and it never bloody came out as near as damn it never came out so it's out now again on on fledgling David David Suff's wonderful label fledgling
2: is a Fred that also keeps coming up and you you mentioned about playing with him in the 70s the next track is another day but that's a a version from the uh, royal festival hall gig that he did about 20 years ago so how did you end up linking up and playing together again
3: well on sunday 12th of june i will be 76 and roy will be 81 so we are exactly five years apart in june 2001 roy was 60 and he took the royal festival hall to have a celebration of that so he asked me to be part of it but a lot of people who were associated with him obviously david bedford nick was there of course people like john renborn can't remember whether jimmy did it i mean he would have done it probably jimmy page but anyway it, it was just people that roy had worked with over the years so this is just one of the songs that he asked me to play with him, but it seems to encompass everything. I mean, roy's is he's an artist that I hugely admire. I learned so much from Roy. I mean, his symphonic approach to folk music and writing, the way that he writes songs that are episodic, you know, they're they're, they're like symphonies, you know, they go through changes. I mean, any of those songs on Stormcock, Apart from one man rock and roll band, but they—they're, uh, you know, they—they they have these things. They're, they're in movements, you know, and and it will segue gently. I mean, and certainly "Bull in a Mink Vase," which is the the first album that I made with him in '76. That is classic. As I say, I first heard him in London at uh, Les Cousins in Greek Street, and as a solo and then worked with him on bills with liverpool scene and became a personal friend and then had those five years joyous five years of playing really great music with him i love roy i think he's fantastic
10: Uh, and here's andy roberts wow This is developing into a bad dream.
3: <laughs> developing into a Roy Harper gig.
11: <laughs>
7: <laughs> okay. Um,
10: okay. So, bear in mind, it's this is a song. is gone another day yeah. she offers me Tibetan tea on a flower tray she's at the door she wants to score she dearly needs to say I loved you a long time ago, you know Where the wind's own forget-me-nots blow But I just could not let myself go Not knowing what on earth there was to know I wish that I had not Because I'm feeling so sad that I I never had one of your children. And across the room, inside a tomb, a chance has waxed and waned. The night is young. Why are we so hung up in each other's chains? I must take her and I must make her While the dove domains Feel the juice run as she flies Run my wings under her sides As the flames of eternity rise To lick us with the firstborn you know. Oh, really, my dear, I can't see what we fear Sat here with ourselves in between us And at the door, we can't say more Than just another day Without a sound I turn around And I walk away
2: We mentioned this earlier about playing song you and Ian uh, linking up in, in the last, was it 20 or 30 years?
3: Uh, yeah, we, we remet in 1989 Under really quite strange circumstances, I was visiting Sally as my wife. We've been together for a long time now. But it was very early in our relationship, in 1989, and she was then living in Brighton, which is where we still live now. And uh, I was visiting her over the weekend. I came down from London, and we were looking in the local paper, the Brighton Evening Argus for something to do let's go somewhere let's take in a show and uh in the local paper there was this thing it said uh at the richmond which is a, a theater pub doesn't exist anymore it said ian matthews i said to sally well i used to work with a bloke called ian matthews mm-hmm. and it can't it can't be the same one because the one i work with lives in texas but i said i know let's do what viv stanchel did to me viv stanchel were in the 70s had gone to do a summer season with the Temperance Seven on on the Isle of Wight, and he sent me a cutting from a, a local paper there. He'd been to see somebody called Andy McRoberts, and uh, he sent me this cutting, and he said, "I saw you. You are bloody awful." <laughs> and I, I thought, "I'll do the same to Ian." You see, I'll cut the clipping out of the, out of the Bright Evening Argus and post it to him in in Texas. So we showed up just to see somebody that I thought would be an ersatz Ian Matthews, and it was Ian working with an American guy called Mark Hallman as a duo. So we had a bit of a reunion, and it was really very affecting. You know, We both felt very strongly that it was great to see each other. And so Ian said, well, look, we're playing in London tomorrow night. We're playing the Cricketers in Kennington. Why don't you come to that? So I took an acoustic guitar and went along. And joined him and Horman on stage, and boy, it was fantastic. It was really, you know, it was like plain song all over again, you know, the the real power of harmony voices and strong collaborative stuff. So everything stemmed from that, you know, and said, well, a few days later, he found me up and said, look, I'm coming back to do a European. Tour. Oh, I think the first thing was the Cambridge Folk Festival. And he said, I'm doing that. Would you do that with me? So I did that. And then he had a European tour and we did that together. And then at the end of that, we just said, well, why don't how would it be if we added two more people and went back to the Plainsong Project and see if we can learn from past mistakes? And that's what we did. So that all started then in 19. 82, I think, was was when we recorded it, but the seed was really planted in 89, 90.
2: Getting together again with Ian has given you the opportunity to record new albums with Plain. So.
3: Yeah, initially, I mean, we did an album every couple of years right through the 90s and into into the 2000s. But eventually it just kind of got away from us. It was very hard to get together. Ian was living in Holland. Oh, no, well, Texas originally through the 90s and then uh, Holland from the year 2000 onwards. Eventually what we did, we recorded a, a live album in, I think, 2006, something like that, and it then just sat on the shelf. So we came up with the idea of releasing that and doing a farewell tour at the same time, which was a very good idea. That was in 2012. We sold the uh, the live album and all the rest of it, and we didn't th- think any more about it. But then Ian got in touch a couple of years later and said, "Look, come on, why don't you and I do something as a duo?" We had done a sort of plain song light project in the early noughties, recorded in, uh, just in my house here in Brighton. We did a, a six track EP called Plain Song From A to B that was just Ian and myself. And we thought, well, we'd do something like that. And a friend of ours called Pat Thomas had said to Ian, there'd never been a definitive version of all the wonderful Richard Frenia songs, Richard and Mimi Frenia songs. And it's true that when you listen to it, I mean, there were good versions, but they were always done exactly the way that Richard and Mimi Frenia had done them. Nobody had ever really tried to pick up the baton and run with it and get some distance between them and and richard so we said well why don't we do that so ian was over doing a you know the gene clark thing ian came back to brighton after that and we just sat down for four days and started looking at the richard because we'd always loved richard i mean he'd recorded reno Nevada in 1967 or 8 with the uh, at Fairport Convention, Plainsong Song had done endless Farinha stuff. So we just examined all of that because you know Farinha was killed in 1966. I mean he was he he was not even 30. He was 20. I think he was 29 when he was killed. They're just you know the incredible layers in the lyrics and they're, they're really interesting. So we just looked at all of those songs and then just found ways of doing them that that worked for us that reflected our abilities proved to be a, a wonderful project so we were able to bring him his genius back to the americans and they lapped it up so we did five american tours in 18 months it really went well i uh, immensely proud of that record
2: fantastic well let's play almond joy there you go bit more up to date with uh spud guns and make like rock and roll so <laughs> that was a trio that that you have uh had rather than have right i play
3: rockabilly just for sheer i think of us you know I'm, I'm a child of the 50s you know that is what i grew up with that's what i really wanted to do when i was 12 that was what i listened to and it's what i wanted to play I was obviously listening to the more notable examples of it, you know, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, Elvis, of course, and the British versions, you know, Tommy Steele and Terry Dean, all of those kind of people. And I like the comedy things. I like people like Ernie K. Doe, you know, all of that stuff. I know it's all brilliant. I've got friends here in Brighton who are very keen on that style of music. They're all far too young to have lived with it in the 50s. But uh, I started playing a good while back now uh with various groups and uh ended up forming this this trio called the Spud Guns yeah with uh, a drummer and a bass player and myself and uh we played very happily for several years so I just thought it would be nice for uh you to hear a, a track by uh, that we recorded in in Essex there's a a studio it's called uh Sugar Rays Vintage Recording I think something like that and it's uh, a bunch of enthusiasts who have got together to to recreate recording in the style of the sun studio in memphis in the 50s and it's all with all of that uh, original equipment i mean it's vintage equipment from the 50s and uh, we went over there and spent a day and recorded a whole bunch of tracks and i thought one of those might be fun to play
11: Let's make like a tree and leave. Let's make like a storm and blow Let's play it like a chicken the scoop Let's make like a rock and roll Well, I took my baby to a ball We had been there long and all And she turned to me And then she said, let's blow this joint The music's dead Let's make like a tree and leave. Let's make like a storm and blow Let's play it like chicken and fried a chicken the scoop Let's make like a rock and Place that I've been in. Watch this thing all the while. me.
2: Andy, um, we're finishing off with one of the highlights of today's podcast. Not everyone, I mean, they'll know the track, but they may not know this particular story. We have Cat Stevens, and How Can I Tell You? So... You mentioned the string organ earlier, so there's, there is a link on this, isn't
3: there? There is, yeah. Gosh, it came about in such a bizarre way. I was recording at Morgan Studios in Wilsdon with Ian on a session that had been produced by Paul samwell smith And at that point, Paul was also producing Cat Stevens. He'd done Tea for the Tillerman and Steve's kind of second career because he'd had a big career in the 60s as a man making top 10 pop records, really. But he'd reinvented himself somewhat as a songwriter and uh, a guy that sat down and played acoustic guitar and played his own songs. So Paul Samuel Smith was waiting for uh, Cat Stevens to come in and do a session immediately after finishing a session with Ian, which I'd been on. Now, Steve, Cat Stevens, we always called him Steve, and Steve's um, second guitarist, Alan Davis was a good friend of mine from way back in the 60s when we'd worked with Sidney Carter and Jeremy Taylor. Sidney Carter is the man that wrote uh, – he's a poet and uh, humanist Quaker and he really was responsible for The Lord of the Dance, which although it's an origin- originally an old shaker tune, he'd uh, uh, written the words for Lord of the Dance. Uh, and much else besides, and had written kind of comedy material that I remember hearing when I was a kid. And he teamed up with a South African singer called Jeremy Taylor, who'd come over to this country with a theatre show called Just a Minim and uh, had a a solo career that I think was largely driven by television. I'd met Sydney and Jeremy at the Edinburgh Festival and worked with them. And Alan Davis had worked with them as well. He was then working with uh, Steve in 1971. Uh, Sydney and Jeremy were long gone by then. So he was the first one to arrive. So just as I was packing my guitar up in Walked Alan. we started talking as guitarists do and sh- comparing instruments. And I had with me the Krivacek string organ. So I was showing him, gosh, look at this. You know, this this makes this noise. It's great, isn't it? And at that point, Steve walked in and I was fooling with the string organ. And he sat down and he started playing a new song, which was, how can I tell you? And... Alan and I both had guitars out and were, and were, you know, on our knees and everything. So we just joining in just as he was routining the song as he was running it through. The next thing was Robin Black, the engineer, had come out of the control room and had set up microphones in front of all three of us. And they'd started recording. And obviously Samuel Smith had said, get out there and, you know, quick and set up and record this. So we started recording it, and it took no time at all. I mean, it was really – it was not a – certainly my involvement didn't take take long. But we played the basic track, but it was a lovely, you know, a lovely counterpoint between the three guitars. And then Steve said, well, why don't you put a solo on with that funny instrument of yours? So I put a solo on with the Krivacek. And my recollection is that within – Thirty, no more than thirty or forty minutes. I was packed up and out of it because I wasn't hired for the session. I just happened to be there. It was pure happenstance. So the next thing was when Teaser and the Firecat the album came out, there was the track that I played on. And I was listening to it and thinking, "Hang on, that's my guitar. I can hear my playing on that." And the, whoop, there's the Krivacek string organ. So I looked on the back of the album, no mention, nothing nada just airbrushed. so i was a bit miffed to be honest because uh steve was a big enough noise that it would have been good for the cv to have had a cat stevens credit in there somewhere and there's no point in saying to people yeah i played on that track and they pick up the album look on the back and say well yeah okay fine you know you're a fantasist but you know that's good but then actually what happened was about three years later Uh, Steve had a big retrospective of his career When he got quite a big band By then he would got the band with Jerry Conway on drums And uh, John Rissell on keyboards And all of that Larry Steele on bass And it was just It was a big thing And that was at the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane And Alan Davis of course And uh, he phoned me up and asked me If I'd go along and recreate that track And particularly that solo on the show So I did so i felt that was some sort of acknowledgement and then way later i mean 2000 and whatever it was they had a sort of remixed or redigitized version of the album came out i mean probably 40 years 35 years after after we'd recorded this thing and in the liner notes Paul Samuel Smith had said, and now this track, and he said, this is my favourite of all the Cat Stevens tracks that we ever made. This is my all-time favourite. And he tells the story of me being there in the string organ and everything. So finally, I got my justification, <laughs> but it took a long time to get there. <laughs>
2: Brilliant. What a pleasure it is to talk to you today, Andy. Um, before we go, I just want to mention your website, andyrobertsmusic.com, as well as a place that you can get in search of song at the minute. It will be available this autumn more widely, root-online.com. Thank you so much for your time today, Andy. No problem, Jason. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
4: ends up to one thing honey and i can't think of right words to say